All right, everybody, it is the second part of our Star Trek-focused uh, video night episodes. We're going to discuss episodes. Do we call them episodes? What do you call them in movies? Just parts? Just It always feels so episodic when it's a streamlined series like that. Well, like with this, even though we kind of broke, we, we broke it up, uh, there is kind of ep, uh, Star Trek's two through four are kind of an episodic storyline. Because you are getting, you know, episode one, two, and then the finale that we're going to talk about this time around. Right. It's weird, because I never thought of them as episodes until they started doing that with Star Wars. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. It's not like it's just a, a random series that just keeps adding a new sequel, like uh, like House, you know, where each one's so wildly different. So, whatever. I don't even know why I'm going off on this. Um, long week, everybody. Long week. <laughs> um, so this episode, we discuss parts four, five, and six. And uh, then we'll do the next generation. Then we'll do the new uh, trilogy, and uh, that'll be the end of the Star Trek focused episodes. Uh, other things we have coming up, we're going to do an episode focused on the 25th anniversary of the Crow, talking about all four entries of that, and also just we're going to jump into a summer series about Kaiju. We'll probably do about six episodes of that. Can't wait. All oh, right, lots of those, lots of Kaiju films. Yeah, well, we we were discussed it offline is uh, do we do all the kaiju, or should we focus differently? Because this is the part that you're going to hate my guts for, but I feel like there's been a lot of remakes of those Godzilla movies from the 60s, and not all of them are very good, and I don't have a whole lot of patience for the older ones. I'm going to check out a few of them out, because I kind of like the uh, the King Kong versus Godzilla, and the, the War of the Gargantua, and stuff like that. And um, I, I'm curious about Daishuman. Uh, it was like a trilogy, this giant statue that came to life i don't know if you've ever heard of that i haven't heard of that one no. i think i might be pronouncing it wrong but I was, i'm just gonna watch this for my own entertainment we are going to start it at the very first godzilla movie i experienced and a lot of people of our generation experience was godzilla 1985 and then work our way up through that yeah that's definitely my first one but let's uh we'll, we'll save that for that cast <laughs> yeah all right so this one here um Star Trek Four, of course, is the one that really broke the series out beyond just the core fans and sci-fi fans. This is the one where people who really weren't into sci-fi um, look back fondly on. And for a long time, I really loved this one. Then I watched it recently, and I was like, oh, I don't. It's okay, but it's definitely not in my top three. Well, kind of how you were talking about last time where you watched Star Trek Three over and over again. This is the one that I watched so much. Like, just starting, because it's been years since I've seen this film. And the second that that the score, uh, you know, uh, Leonard uh, Rosenman's uh, score starts up, I'm just, you know, I'm taken back to my childhood. I am, you know, six, seven years old again, just watching this thing. And, uh, yeah, it's not, it, it's, it's a fine movie, but... It's not. It's not a great one, but it. When we're you know when these when they always talk about the even numbers being the good ones, it is a better film than some of these other ones. Oh, definitely. You know. So it it does still stand in there, but that's also because, and actually, I think when we get to the next generation films, I will explain. This I, I, I know I talked a little bit about it the first time, but my actual feeling as to why the even number ones are good until you get to ten. Yeah. I think I think I will will save that for for the generation cast. The uh, Star Trek Four, the Voyage Home, is 
I equate it to Ant-Man in the Marvel Universe. If you, you don't want to get too involved in the Marvel Universe, you don't want too many characters, you want it streamlined, the most accessible for people who aren't comic book geeks. Uh, geeks. Ant-Man seems to be that way for Marvel, whereas Star Trek IV seems to be that way with that universe. Like, oh, this is really accessible to people who don't normally get into sci-fi. Yeah, and that just is. Like, it. why it's so accessible is that it was mo- a modern-day story. You know, they time-traveled back to stop this yeah. probe who doesn't... Uh, this, this probe that has no real point to anything that it does, like, it just shows up starts uh, wrecking shit, and then our heroes uh, save the day, and it just leaves. Like, you know, we kind of talked about how in the first Star Trek film, there's no real villain. Same thing with this. There's not really a villain, and that's, I think, kind of its problem. Oh, well, other, unless you're going to talk about how humans are the, are the real monsters. <laughs> well, yeah. But, <laughs> the... Uh... Yeah, it's more about a goal, a task, than defeating a villain, which is kind of a refresher, honestly, from 2 and 3, because they're pretty heavy. Like like you and I discussed, 2 and 3 are very Shakespearean. Same thing for Part 6. And that's what makes them work so well, is that they're huge, dramatic ideas. Where this one is, you know, more humorous, it has modern times set in it, it has the, uh, the normal, if you want to call it the normal, is the person that you are supposed to uh, recognize yourself in. And that way you can access into the, into the Hellboy rule, where they had that one guy, I can't remember, Rupert something, Rupert Friend or something like that, where he was kind of unnecessary to that world, but he was that access point for the average viewer to get yeah. into the Hellboy world. Yeah, we're giving we're giving our audience surrogate in a uh, right in in that uh, girl Jill, the the scientist Jillian. So she's she's given a, a chance to oh look at all this stuff. Yet she she's able to take all this stuff pretty well considering you know yeah and I, the other thing i do like about this movie is that it gives everybody something to do of the core cast because a lot of times it's really heavily focused on the trilogy you know a, a captain kirk spock and bones whereas this one it gives everybody something to do which which is enjoyable yeah they all have their roles they all they all are tasked with something to do and they're paired up in nice in, in nice little nice little uh sets and also not necessarily sets that you would have thought of yeah you know what's funny is i actually uh i used to live right by one of those sets it's set in san francisco but that aquarium is actually from monterey and i used to live right down the road from that yeah i've actually i i've actually been there as well that's uh one of my family vacations we ended up going to uh, the monterey bay aquarium you know, it's funny, and they got rid of the whales by the time I had moved there, but it's just still mind-boggling to me that they even fit. I was just, like, looking at the space, and I was like, mm, I don't know, man. That seems like, and that's the thing that bothered me in this movie. Now, and I'm no scientist in any way whatsoever. I don't understand how exactly those things work. But I just kept thinking, this Klingon ship is a light fighter ship, and yet it has room for these whales, and it has the power to launch. I was like, I'm not sure if that's going to work. <laughs> well, I mean, it is... I guess it would be not. I wouldn't say necessarily a light fighter ship, but it is designed to run around and blow things up. So I, I would guess that its hold would be designed to carry a good amount of armaments. Okay. Yeah, and I guess in my head, it's stop? hard to tell sometimes with ships because the way you view it on camera in relation to what the person inside of it's supposed to be doesn't always match in my head. Like the see to me, the Klingon ship seems like it'd be the size of a Firefly. You know, the, the small condensed and just, you know, the wingspan was the only thing that was really, like, taking up space. But the inside seemed like they'd be really small. 
But, you know, I don't. I also don't know Star Trek lore that well. Like, I haven't read the books and see what the, the comparison size to a person inside that ship is. Yeah, I like I like Trek, but yeah, I'm not. I couldn't I couldn't give you like these. I couldn't break down the schematics or anything like that for one of these ships, and you know, just push off my glasses and be like, well, actually, it's yeah. And, and so, if you're offended by this, I understand. Look, some people really really get into stuff. This isn't technically meant for the Star Trek viewer, like the hardcore viewer. I mean, I, I don't even aim it at them when I put this episode out. This is for like the casual Joes that enjoy Star Trek but don't really know it that much. So I understand if you're like upset, I get it. But um, yeah, I'm yeah. just not, I'm not, I'm not a Trekkie. Trekker? Do they change yeah. this? I feel like they changed it halfway through. They, There's a difference between a Trekkie they and a Trekker. Changed, yeah. They, they changed it to Trekker because everyone would make fun of you for being a Trekkie. Yeah. Is that, so is that documentary? They, they <laughs> yeah. Partially that too. The. But, uh, so yeah, four this, is is movie. definitely the one that is more comedic, and there's a lot of uh, modern day stuff that they love to play with, like the punk rocker on the on the uh, subway or no, on the bus and stuff like that. And uh, nuclear waste. What what'd you say? Waste. <laughs> yes. Where are your nuclear vessels? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just walking around. Uh, but yeah, that definitely has. You, you get the. Uh, the Cold War tensions, because yeah, you have Chekhov, a Russian, uh, a Russian man in the future, running, running around in this uh, Cold War era, San Francisco, asking for nuclear. <laughs> yeah, um, there's not really much to say about four because there's nothing really wrong with it. There's nothing really right with it. So, I, I, if you're done with four, I'm done with four. Well, I'll throw a couple of things out okay. that I thought was kind of interesting from trivia. Uh, parts of this film, since they were starting to uh, gear up to do Next Generation, it was actually designed to foreshadow uh, the series by, you know, where they're starting to talk about peace talks with the Klingons and things like that. And uh, one of the reasons why Savick is basically like regulated to like one scene in the film, mm-hmm. she did have a bigger part where they were going to talk about her being pregnant with Spock's child from uh, for banging on the Genesis planet, but uh, yeah, then they just said, yeah, "Let's let's cut all that." Yeah, I didn't know that was so, a thing. <laughs> yes, yeah, Davik's apparently pregnant, and there was a lot of stuff shot for that for a while until they cut it all out. The uh, but, and this is the end of that trilogy, which started with Khan, and you know the Enterprise has been destroyed. Kirk's lost his son. It almost feels like it was necessary for the brevity, because two and three were pretty heavy. And, and, you know, of course, they had the Klingon ship to get back and forth. I still don't understand how that works either. How, how, how do you wrap it? That's a Superman rules. Wrap it around the sun? Really? Well, that's what they did in the original Trek series. They just slingshot around the sun, and then somehow that causes time travel. I just but what was, what is up with that weird little surreal moment as they go back in time? Brrr. Like everything started to like separate and push. I, I'm trying to remember now. Yeah, well, it's like all of a sudden you have the there's a guy falling in the in the in sky, and I mean there's something that looks like a, a representation of a humpback whale, but then there's more falling. Oh, and some yeah, and right. Stuff, and it's like I totally forgot about it. The like, faces the, rise out of the on? ground. Yeah, it's just like what the hell is going on? <laughs> Maybe you hallucinate as time is flipping around. Yeah, some I don't know it. It just it stand it 
really stands out. The uh, does to me anyway. Yeah, the fifth one is one that I actually liked the first time I saw it, and I forgot, and I hadn't seen it since uh, I watched it probably in 1990. Um, and I remember the first half being better than the second half. The second half seems to be where everything kind of went wrong. Like I feel like someone stepped in and saw the end. Like the producers weren't paying attention enough to the end, and like, oh, people aren't going to get this. Let's change this quickly and cut the budget. And it just ends up kind of a mess. It seems to start off really fun, and it, it looks like it's going to be a good adventure. And at the end, you're like, what? what do, I'm not sure what just happened, huh? What's, what's funny, this is, this is really, I mean, until you get to the next generation films, technically, but this is really the most profane, like, you know, so much, I get minor profanity in it, but this has the most cursing in it in any of these Star Trek movies. Just they're constantly going, damn hell! <laughs> like, yeah, and it beats like, the double. Like it was a double dumbass on you. I think people must have liked it when they cussed in the fourth one, and they just kind of egged it on. Yeah, it, it was just I'm watching this kind of going. This feels kind of weird. Yeah, and just how much how much was going there? Well, it feels like filmmaking by committee again. Like, and, but the committee didn't show up till halfway through production. Well. It, what uh, two things that happened with this was the '88 writer strike basically oh. kind of killed the film budget. Uh, basically, they they killed mostly this the special effects budget, so that killed most of what they're uh, you know what they planned to do at the end of the film. Uh huh. And at the same time, Shatner's cut was actually like just over two hours, and then uh, Paramount decided to cut it so they could have two screenings a night. Okay, jeez. Yeah, I forgot about the 88 strike, because that was one of the longest strikes, I think, ever. I think it went from, I want to say it was from April of 20, or, sorry, April of 1998 till October of 98, or 88. And that's a long time in television, because, you know, they have to shoot all those episodes way ahead of time. But even movies, it's worse, because you have to have that script laid out before film production even begins. There's no way to really save it, like... A couple weeks later, so if a film isn't ready and they force it into production, I think we all learned our lesson with Rise of Cobra, which was shoved in production before it was ready because of the strike. I mean, a lot of films. Uh, I, I, if I had uh, written down a list of these things, you could said like, oh yeah, writer strikes hurt this, this, this. I mean, you go, my God, a lot of these. You know, so many films that could have been good. Yeah. Well, it's funny is me and Andrew were discussing, uh, Andrew's my co-host on the other Video Night episodes, um, movies that got greenlit before the strike of, I want to say it was 2002, maybe, is that The Transporter got greenlit because they were in a hurry. And same thing for Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. Fox rushed both of those into production before the writer's strike. Well, Kung Pao is... I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be kind of saucy with that one. Uh, that one's mostly just improv anyway. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. What I was going to say, I'm sorry, I forgot to finish my thought. Jeez, I must be tired. Uh, no, the, the fact that they greenlit it because they were afraid they would have no more movies. So, that, you know, stuff that would never get made or stuff that would have gone straight to video. All of a sudden, Fox is back, you know, like, that's, okay, you guys are desperate. You're, like, really worried that, the con- you know, the strike might go on for a year and you'll have no movies whatsoever. So you're just greenlighting anything that sounds interesting. And that's almost, that's exciting to me sometimes, to see something that would never get made that would get destroyed by people who are like, oh, we got to change this and this and this. So, like, I don't have time. Let's just, change, let's just go. Green light. <laughs> yeah. Although, it, again, I've been saucy with, with Kung Pao and just, like, yeah, there's just a good reason not to make that movie. 
don't know. I enjoy it. It's not great, but it's it's fun. Um, yeah, so five. Five is the one that almost destroyed the franchise. Mind you, it opened up in a summer that was filled with so many insanely big movies. You had Batman, Last Crusade, um, Ghostbusters 2, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I mean, just that, this seems like yeah, the tip of the it, iceberg. There's so many movies that were coming out that summer that just killed it. Yeah, the competition on this film was was enough that it, it didn't have a chance. Even even if the film was good, this this film wasn't going to make it against some of these some of these big bigger films. Yeah, I mean, you you and I discussed this with License to Kill, which is actually a, a pretty damn entertaining movie. But it just came out at the end of summer, I think like the last week of July, and people were exhausted, I think, by that point, because they had spent all summer watching these huge movies that they were just like, eh, James Bond's old, Star Trek's old, let's just move on. Yeah, I, I just say this, as much as I'm not a big fan of this one, there is a line that uh, Kirk says that really, that was kind of poignant, especially when you consider what happens later on in this franchise. But he's sitting there uh, talking about uh, how he knew he wasn't going to die falling from uh, El Capitan. Uh, he's like, I've always known I'll die alone. And it's kind of like you think about it, and once you get to uh, generations, you kind of go, yeah, he kind of was right. Yeah, it's um, – I think it's one that's it's a little maligned uh, more than it should be, but still it definitely like lower tier uh, Star Trek. Well, it's it's another one. I, the uh, odd films are about concepts, whereas uh, I'll, I'll get in, I'll get into what the even numbers are once we get once we get to the next gen. Okay. But, uh, yeah, odd. The odd films are about concepts. I'll, I'll say it like that. The uh, whereas they have ideas. What's up exactly with? Uh, it, was it like a whole jealousy thing that Shatner demanded that he direct a movie? Was that was that part of the oh, deal? Shet- Shetner had uh, in his contract one of those. Uh, if Nimoy does it, I get to do it too. Things. Oh, and gotcha. I I want to say he was supposed to direct four, but that didn't but that didn't come to pass. So they gave him five, okay. something like that. Uh, yeah. So this one, in my opinion, is just it's passable. Watch it every once in a while, but I don't think it needs to be as hated as much as it is. It's just the end that just really like throws you off. You're like, is this really what you wanted to do with this series? Okay. Well, part of me wants to see. I, I part of me wants them to give Shatner the money to actually shoot the stuff that he wanted to do, so we could actually see this, you know, Dante's Inferno hell thing that that he was wanting to do and see that he fights these rock monsters that apparently they did shoot they were going to have like oh okay we can't do Dante's hell okay uh, he's going to fight rock monsters okay we can't do rock we'll do one rock monster oh the rock monster looks terrible okay we're just going <laughs> to ignore that <laughs> I had no idea about I, any of this wow I have not seen the footage but apparently I, on one of the DVDs you can see the uh, I guess they have the actual rock monster stuff and i hear it's just not it just it's not good yeah oh please tell me there was at least a song by the b-52s rock monster oh not no unfortunately not yeah. that'd be funny if just all of a sudden just anytime he shows up what's his name fred something or whatever uh whenever he shows up he's just so enjoyable and i would have like oh well this doesn't make any sense for the movie but damn it's entertaining 
Um, six. Oh. Six is the one. I went and saw this in the theater. So I saw three, four, and six. Actually, I saw seven and eight as well. Wow. I didn't realize I'd see so many Star Trek movies in the theater. Um, six, I went to the theater all by myself, and I was like, oh, no one cares about Star Trek anymore. But I was kind of getting back into the show, watching the reruns of the original series, and I really started getting into the next generation. And I just remember just being wowed at how good, how tight uh, part six was. Like, they don't waste any moments. And it just kind of gets it back to basics, which really works for the series. Yeah, it is It is a very straight, straightforward film. And that's definitely what works about it. You got uh, Nicholas Meyer coming back from, from after directing two. I mean, it's got a hell of a cast. You know, Christopher Plummer is our, our main villain. And... Oh man, just everything I I've had forgotten just kind of how violent this movie is. Though. Yeah. CGI blood like, is the yeah. first time I ever saw CGI blood. Yeah, that was it doesn't hold up as well, you know, but I remember in theaters that looking so amazing. You know what's funny it was what threw me off and I think maybe it was a bad decision on their part is having Christian Slater do a cameo. I was just like, "Oh, that instantly took me out of this movie." What's kind of funny about that is his mom was the casting uh, casting director of it. So is his mom hey, Mary Jo a... Slater really? Yeah. I didn't so she had she had a, there was a part open and it's like, hey, do you want to do this? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> All right, that's actually kind of cool. I didn't know that. So um, I was trying to think. This is the one where uh, how, I want to say now I, I might be wrong on this, and it makes me a little embarrassed. But is Savick back in this one? But it's played by Kim Cattrall. Is that the same character? Yes and no. It was supposed to be Savick. Kim Cattrall was originally going to be Savick in part two. Then she was going to be cast as Savick in part three, <laughs> and things just kind of kept falling apart. So by the time this came around, she did not want to play Savick. Gotcha. So they basically just they changed it to a new character, but yeah, it's it's still Savick kind of. Thing. Okay, gotcha. Because I was wondering, I was like, that sure seems like the same character, but they're not saying it. So I was just like thrown off. Um. Yeah, this is another just big space adventure, but it sticks to kind of like the whole Shakespearean elements that you loved in part two and three. I think that's part of the reason why I think Christopher Plummer agreed to do it, because, you know, he's a big Shakespearean stage actor, and he probably saw this thing and just, like, ate it up. He's like, oh, this is going to be great. But you also have uh, oh, David they, Warner. They, David Warner's great. Oh. I'm, isn't David Warner in another Star Trek? I feel like he was in two of them. He was in five. He was in five. He, uh, in he five. was the, one of the guys on the on the planet... Uh, He's a little envoy to the, the Mad Max world that they're visiting. And, yeah, then he's now here in under a ton of uh, Klingon makeup. And we also finally have good-looking Klingon. <laughs> good-looking Klingon is a weird thing to say. Well, and, and, yeah, at this point, you know, you have the uh, Next Generation series has been running. So you have constant uh, makeup for Michael Dorn, yeah. who also shows up in this as an ancestor of his next-gen character so yeah they're gonna actually look more like how we think of the klingons now yeah and uh i mean this is a really good send-off for the series i mean roddenberry i think was gone by the time this movie came out and getting nicholas meyer back kind of helped right the ship i think that was kind of you know steering the wrong direction and you know it's it's the whole cast back together again for the last time because i believe deforest kelly also passed away soon after this one I, it just—it's a really good, fun movie, and it really sticks to sci-fi elements. It doesn't try to 
go beyond, you know, it, it feels like a big budget episode of the show. Yeah, and, but in a good way, because there's uh, there's one that come that we'll be talking about with the next gen one where it's also very much like a extended episode, but not a good episode. <laughs> uh, but but there's there's a there's something I I thought I misremembered about this movie, and then I was looking at the trivia for it, and it explains it. In in the VHS and TV versions of this movie, there's a character played by uh, also also a Trek actor, uh, Rene Auberjonois. Okay. He uh, he is in the VHS and and TV versions of this movie as like a not general but like a like a marine or something like that who is the assassin uh, the attempted assassin at the end of the film who gets a uh, knocked out a window and killed and then there's a shot where they reveal that oh this guy who's a Klingon is actually this dude that we saw earlier in the film you know but again original I remembered this unmasking scene but as I'm watching it on DVD it's not there I've had a moments like that you know it's weird when you like yeah. uh, there's a scene in the crow where a guy he gets his hand chopped off by a samurai sword and it's not in the DVD release, but I know for a fact I saw it in theaters. And it's just so weird. Like, these little bits and pieces disappear over time with some movies. Yeah, it's like, it's it wasn't in the theatrical cut. And then, even though they put it back in the VHS, they took it out for DVD. That's and so, so I'm, I feel I feel kind of cheated that I have a cut version of the film that I remember watching on tape. Yeah, I don't like it when directors go back and... and chop up movies like i always thought it was strange they did that with motion picture you know the first star trek movie did it with star wars et i get it when you have to pad it for television like say you have to cut out a bunch of stuff like fast times original high notoriously cut up movie for television but then they added all this footage to pad it so they could get the full two hours that makes sense but then sometimes you just like wonder like what exactly happened like where i i, I didn't I, I didn't imagine this this actually happened and all of a sudden just you can't find any evidence yeah, it, it was just kind of a weird disconnect where I'm just going, I I have vivid memories of this, and now, you know, I feel crazy until I get vindicated. Right. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this series before we go? Let's see. Uh, for Trek 6, Shatner did actually do one of his own stunts. You know how he's, uh, when they're in the prison, he's fighting that big blue alien, and he's getting thrown around stuff, and at one point they throw, you know, throw some poor bastard and he lands on a fire and and has to and rolls around and stuff yeah that was shatner that shatner was the poor bastard who basically <laughs> he was going to start getting thrown into fire and rolling around so you know props to him for uh, attempting something that a lot of people would definitely not want to do no joke i don't understand why anybody wants to destroy their body for it especially since he was like probably in his 60s by then at this at that point, yeah, it's. I would definitely not want to. Uh, I wouldn't want to do that. So, but hey, it's it's a good way to not have to hide a person's face because I think you actually see him. You know, you actually see his face as he's going towards this thing. That is a thing that was it's, a problem for me during this era. Is you know they hadn't got the CGI face masking yet, uh, and you know there will always seems to be a guy who was younger who had to put on a fake belly and a fake wig and something like that, you could always just tell. Like, you watch the A-Team, you're like, oh, yeah, that's clearly not uh, uh, Hannibal. Who? What the fuck was his name? 
Why can't they get the guy who played uh, who started? Uh, damn it, who started A team? <laughs> Whatever, it doesn't matter. Whatever, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Not Dirk Benedict. Um, Whatever, I'll look it up later. But yeah, you'd always tell when it was him uh, or, or stand-in. Same thing with TJ Hooker, you could always tell. I didn't know that TJ Hooker, when he was running, that he wasn't actually running, that he was just on a platform and it was moving above the ground and it would just have like, he would just like run in place as it was going across. <laughs> I had no idea. I always thought, man, he's really fit. <laughs> oh, oh, movie magic. Yeah. I, I, think, oh, I think... I will, I will have to... Go ahead. Oh, go, 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 go. Uh, I was just thinking, I was thinking, this is kind of the era where we finally stopped joking about Shatner being a shitty actor. We started realizing, like, it was slowly getting better, our attitude towards him. He had been really good in that Saturday Live appearance, and uh, Rescue 911 uh, uh, doesn't count because that wasn't really a show show. But I think the, the laughter of him being on TJ Hooker was over with, and people started appreciating, you know, Star Trek. It's, you know, noticing that he was kind of a, a decent actor. You notice he started doing more comedic roles, like he's in Loaded Weapon 1 as one of the main villains. And uh, was it was that show, Boston Practice, that he was in some time after he left Star oh, Trek? Boston Legal. Boston, Boston Legal. Legal. That's the, yeah, as I said, I think I said that this last time on the show, if you really want to see Shatner acting his ass off, watch that show. It's, I mean, he's, he's, he's playing a jokey type character, but there's, you know, as much as you're laughing and having a good time with, with kind of how full, you know, Shatter can definitely play full of himself. Yeah. And, but there are these quiet moments and these, uh, like beautiful dramatic things that you, you sit there and just go like, shit, Shatter can really act when he wants to. Yeah. The, uh, I remember now is George Papard. He started the 18. Oh, yes, yes, I yes. I um, all right, so that's the end of this episode. We'll be back in a little bit for the next generation movies. And uh, check us out on Facebook under Video Night. Everybody, have a good evening. <laughs>